2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I think today we're doing tunnels. Is that right? Yeah, we're going to venture into some strange tunnels in the earth.
1: Um, I I don't know about you, Joe, but I I love a good creepy tunnel story. Um, You know, any caliber of motion picture, if you have like a subway tunnel and you have a monster shambling around down there or even possibility of a monster shambling Mm -hmm. around down there, I'm generally on board.
0: Oh yeah. I mean uh, it's one of the classics in, you know, your your uh your your fairy tale types, uh one of the big ones is you gotta go into the underworld, right? Yeah, what's yeah, what's closer in physical reality to an underworld than a cave or a tunnel? Caves and tunnels, yeah. I mean humans have, have long been fascinated by them. You know,
1: we see a cave, we want to get in there, we need to know what's going on, we need to find out what kind of sacred uh secrets are contained in there. And so, uh, you know, I'm also continually fascinated by tales of, of uh, you know, modern tunnel systems, abandoned tunnel systems from from further back in history. Um, I also love a good, you know, tunnel of unknown origin stories, such as the, the strange tunnels in the Hyperion novels. Or, uh, oh, another a film in this case that had some strange tunnels. Uh, there's the whole uh, tunnel plot line in Jordan Peele's 2019 film, Us. Yeah, yeah. That and one, let's not spoil anything about that. No, one. no, I'm not going to spoil anything. But it does open with a with a fun uh, text crawl. Uh, "Quote: There are thousands of miles of tunnels beneath the United States, abandoned subway systems, unused service routes, and deserted mine shafts. Many have no known purpose at all." So I, instantly, I was you know on board for that. <laughs> I love a good informational legend like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, no, the fun thing about that quote is that. It's uh, it's a fun one to ponder over because on one hand it's sort of true there are a lot of of um, of abandoned uh, tunnel systems in the United States some with some pretty en- engaging stories about them at, at times you know old mm-hmm. mines abandoned subway projects abandoned subway lines I'm a real I'm a real sucker for that sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, also, you know, ultimately, I think this is a the, – the the film in question is one that maybe doesn't – you're not supposed to take it completely seriously and think, well, there's this entire system of, of tunnels and who knows what's going on down there. But it also reminds me of what we're talking about here today, uh, the story of mysterious tunnels
0: uh, and caves, caverns in South America. Now, what makes today's example really interesting is – Normally, you're going to think about your uh, your mysterious tunnels in two categories. One is one is obviously you know a cave of geologic origin. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, oh you know here here's a millions of years old uh, cave with with stalactites and stalagmites. Clearly, a water formed cavity of some type. Uh, but then the other. Bucket of course is uh, who made this tunnel? What human dug this, and for what purpose? But actually, uh, those two categories leave out a leave out another option, don't they?
1: Yeah, and it's not aliens. The, right. the The fun thing about this is you don't need aliens to get to the you know the wow moment uh, to the uh, to the amazing content of this particular topic because we're still we still seem to be dealing with a non human entity. Uh, a non-human will behind these um, these these tunnels or caves or or burrows uh, is, is probably more appropriate to call them these paleo burrows of South America. They're not the work of a, of a pre-Columbian society. Uh, they're older uh, and they're quite impressive. Well, but as we dive in here, I want to mention that um, that one of my main sources here is an excellent book that uh, came out, I believe, in twenty seventeen. By Anthony J. Martin, um, a paleontologist at uh, Emory University here, uh, here in Atlanta, uh, titled The Evolution Underground, Burrows, Bunkers, and the Marvelous Subterranean World Beneath Our Feet. Um, I've been meaning to cover this book in some form or another for a while, and uh, I, I saw it on the shelf again. I was like, all right, I,
0: today's the day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust this book out and see what grabs my attention. So I haven't read this yet, but my interest is piqued because I, like you, love a tunnel, a burrow, uh, a den under the earth. Uh, But I I was familiar with Anthony J. Martin's name, and I'm not sure, but I think it was because he was one of the authors of research from 2007 uh, that was famous for documenting the first fossil ev- evidence of a dinosaur that dug tunnels. Did you read mm-hmm. about this? Uh, yeah, this is covered in the in the in the book. Uh huh. Yeah, there's some some
1: wonderful illustrations, and even in one case, I believe a, a bit of folk art depicting these creatures, which I
0: loved. Uh, So uh, the brief rundown on this, the paper where they described this find uh, came out in 2007 in Proceedings of the Royal Society B Biological Sciences. It was by uh, David J. Vericchio, Anthony J. Martin, and Yoshihiro Katsura. And it was called First Trace and Body Fossil Evidence of a Burrowing Denning Dinosaur. So, this fossil find came from a formation in southwest Montana, it was near the border with Idaho. I think it's called the Blackleaf Formation. And this formation dates back to the mid Cretaceous period. The find consisted of both the trace fossil of the burrow itself, as well as skeletal fossils found inside. The skeletal fossils were of one adult and two juveniles, which apparently all died and were fossilized inside the burrow. The dinosaur was a member of a previously undiscovered species of Ornithischia, which the authors name Oryctodromias cubicularis. And uh, that genus name, or Rictodromius, that means digging runner. So that gives you a hint of like the two main talents of uh, the stat build of this dinosaur. Uh, these would have been herbivorous dinosaurs that lived you know, roughly ninety something million years ago. And so one question you might wonder is, well, how do we know that the dinosaurs we found inside actually made the tunnel or burrow instead of just, I don't know, finding a a naturally occurring hollow or, or tunnel made by some other mysterious creature? Well, it seems likely that the dinosaurs themselves made it because of the creature's anatomy and because of its relationship to the burrow. So. In the words of the authors, quote, the features of the snout, shoulder girdle, and pelvis are consistent with digging habits. So it has multiple uh, anatomical adaptations you would expect to find in a creature that specializes in digging. Like it's got a snout that uh, is sort of fused together in a way that would make it kind of a good shovel for like – kicking soil back and forth, and its skeletal structure seems well put together to kind of brace itself with the back limbs or the pelvis as it uses its forelimbs to dig and and throw soil out behind it.
1: Yeah, this is something that's uh, that's touched on with various organisms uh, in this book, that an organism needs the tools for burrowing or digging but it's not just the you know the, something a matter of having claws or some sort of snout. Uh, it also needs uh, like the, the body to back it up, and so we can right. look at the bodies of, the, of many of these organisms that uh, are extinct now, and we can we can make very informed uh, uh, uh,
0: guesses about what their body had evolved to do. Right, you need the right kind of chassis to give you leverage with which to dig, because yeah. you remember you're. Digging is not just about what the hands are doing in the front, the forelimbs limbs scraping away at things. You all the bracing is really important. You got to hold your ground while you're scraping. Yes, yeah, you can't just put a a, a big scoop on the front of your, um, I don't know, your Prius and say you're going to go out and start moving earth around. <laughs> <laughs> But another clue that the the dinosaurs inside this burrow dug it were uh, the fact that the the burrow almost perfectly matches the width and breadth of the the torso of the adult. Mm -hmm. So it seems like this is a burrow of the right size to have been dug by the adult dinosaur. And the adult is found along with two juveniles inside the burrow. And they were found with no bite marks or anything on the bones, no signs of, of carnivore bone assemblies like you might sometimes find where, you know, a carnivore is dumping all the the bones from its recent meals. So it looks like this was not just a tunnel dug by a dinosaur, but one that an adult dinosaur lived inside with its juveniles. And this would provide evidence of a case of extended parental care in dinosaurs, something that I think was uh, less well evidenced and more controversial at the time. And based on the size of the juveniles, it appears that this parental care had gone on for at least several months. Yeah, yeah. This is a this is in
1: stark contrast to some of the uh, hypothesized um, ways that say giant sauropods uh, would have uh, dealt with their young. I, I remember discussing that on the podcast, where like at least one hypothesis was that like the eggs kind of just fall out and they just roll to the side and then they do their thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally different
0: parenting strategy. Anyway, the authors of this paper. Note that vertebrates today create burrows, of course, for a number of reasons. Some actually use tunneling as a as a food foraging strategy, trying to get underground food. Some use it for escaping predators. That's a common one. It's a type of shelter that protects you. And some use it for avoiding the elements in harsh environments. But the other half of the equation is that this animal, Oryctodromius, was also a cursor, which means a runner. Remember, the name means digging runner. Mm-hmm. And the authors of this paper say that if we look at analogies today, running animals that create burrows tend to do so for a pretty specific reason, which is they create them as dens for rearing their young. So once you give birth to young, the, the young and the juveniles are pretty vulnerable for a while until they get bigger, big enough to run around and, and defend themselves like an adult can. And so a den provides a place to protect the young while they're growing and still vulnerable.
1: Now, Joe, you included a fabulous bit of paleo art here uh, from this this study. This is actually in the book as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I I love a good bit of uh, paleo art, but here we see the the parent. uh, We see a a cutaway of the burrow, and we see the two uh, young uh, dinos at the bottom.
0: I like that the paleo artist, in this case, has chosen to depict the adult uh, Erictoddroius as Sam the Eagle from the Muppets. <laughs> has a very severe eyebrow and, uh, and, and a very uh, well, I think this is anatomically accurate, the beak-like mouth. yes. Well, anyway, sorry if that was a digression from the paleo burrows, but I just wanted to say, yeah, so you're, you're looking at this book by Anthony J. Martin, and M- Martin has a history with with the diggers yeah and martin knows his uh his tunnels and his
1: uh, his burrows here, and so he he uh, he discusses the the paleo burrows in the evolution underground, uh, pointing out that um, geologists in Argentina and Brazil noted these burrows back in the 1920s and 1930s uh, some had partially or wholly filled with sediment, but others remained quite open uh, they were cut in a variety of soft uh, um, uh, igneous uh, metamorphic and set and sedimentary bedrock so we're talking about we're talking about rock here uh, that's one of the the uh, important and i think really impressive things about uh, about this uh some of some were visible in outcrops others as uh, cylindrical chambers there are some actually some wonderful uh, photographs you can find online and attached to various um Articles about these, uh, papers about these—they're uh, quite impressive. They look just like like a tunnel cut through a rock. You can, uh, uh, you you know, you, you, they look like um, they, they look like real tunnels. We're not just talking about just uh, an indention in the side of a hill.
0: Yeah, some of them look like somebody brought in the boring machine, like they yeah. are a, a, a large, like several meter wide, basically circular sl- cylindrical tunnel. O- others are uh, smaller, more compact, or more kind of a half moon shape. But I, I just wanted to flag this was interesting because so Martin notes that, that people had previously observed these things in the 20s and 30s in uh, Argentina and Brazil. Now, I, I had been reading about the burrows in some articles that came out in 2017 and those articles were, uh, were, were essentially saying that, that nobody had ever reported these things until just recently, that they, they'd just sort of come on the radar. But it seems like Martin has turned up some other previous reports of, of these things.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's what seems to be the case. But uh, the, the, the important thing is they, they weren't ex- exactly sure what they were looking at here. Yeah. And yeah. the, the, over the decades to follow – hundreds of these caves were uncovered uh, with a lot of concentration in the area of what is now uh, Rio Grande do Sol in southern Brazil. Um, others, uh, other uh, burrows of this nature are simply undiscovered. Uh, I've seen a total number expressed somewhere around like 1,500. And again, there are likely others as well that uh, haven't been discovered or will never be discovered, you know.
0: Yeah. The reporting I was reading said that most of these are clustered in kind of a kind of strange geographical bands like right in this area in southern brazil but not further south in like uruguay but then if you go even further south there are some more down further into argentina
1: yeah so the archaeologists came back and they were studying them with renewed interest in the 70s and 80s and they hypothesized that these were surely the work of human beings Martin writes, quote, considering their proportions and geological setting, this was a perfectly reasonable hypothesis as they superficially resembled human-made tunnels and chambers in uh, Cappadocia and elsewhere. Now, Cappadocia... um, is uh, is noted here as uh uh it's a place uh, that in uh, what is modern day turkey where you have these hip- wonderful historic cave houses uh that can still be seen today um joe you might be interested to also note that they filmed parts of your the hunter from the future here
0: yes there there are quite clear signs of it the, the movie has scenes of of the of its uh muscly superstar reb brown uh scuttling around over these beautiful rock formations. <laughs> I think he fights a dinosaur in, in what is clearly Cappadocia.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, while some of these burrows, again, in South America, were too small to have served as anything other than hiding places for children... Um, he writes that others were large enough to have potentially been human dwellings. The largest were as wide as 13 feet or 4 meters. Um, they were 6.6 feet tall or, uh, or you know, two, or 2 meters. And they were more than 330 feet long or about 100 meters in length. So, uh, again, we, you know, in, in many of these cases, we're not just talking about uh, some sort of a, a narrow burrow, but something that um, that, that, a, that a family or a small group could have lived in. Quote, moreover, some tunnels connected with one another or join larger sub spherical chambers to make more complicated networks. Once put together, some of these spaces feasibly could have served as underground homes for families or small communities. A few even contain petroglyphs, showing that pre Columbian people entered at least some of them. And as we've we've touched on already, I know there's a there's a long history of humans using naturally occurring caves, if not for shelter, then for For other purposes, be it like, um, you know, a a burial or some sort of sacred purpose, or uh, in some cases, uh, you know, we're not sure exactly what that purpose might have been. Uh, And then we have uh, excellent examples of places like uh, uh, Cappadocia, which we just mentioned, uh, which demonstrate that if local geologic conditions are conducive to excavation, then homes can be manufactured in the substance of the earth. Uh, There are also various traditions of pit houses, partially buried or excavated homes. Again, it just kind of depends on the culture, what's available there uh, in the given uh, environment. But in looking at these paleoburrows, uh, researchers began to notice things that made it less likely that humans built these particular tunnels at all. So first of all, while artifacts and petroglyphs did factor into some of these sites, we did not find anywhere near the amount of human bones and human artifacts that we'd expect to find at a place where humans lived. Humans visited... But they did not seem to live here, and this is something that uh, you know. You, you think of any of uh, any of the episodes we've recorded, or anything you read about about ancient sites of human habitation. You have the you know you have these layers you can go through. Uh, you can you can s- essentially sort through the garbage of, of human civilizations and learn what they were up to and how long they were there. Mm-hmm. And in these cases, it does not seem like there is there are enough artifacts, enough remains, or even enough uh, you know um, uh, petroglyphs. Uh, to to indicate that they were here. And that's another thing. Petroglyph rarity in these tunnels indicated, according to Martin, quote, folks were not inspired enough to hang out in these places and make art. Another fact, and this gets into uh, the artifact issue as well, is indigenous peoples in uh, eastern South America did not have access to the right materials for rock carving tools and no evidence of, of said tools were found. So, again, getting back into the, the, the lack of artifacts to support the, uh, the idea that humans made these, uh, these burrows uh, and or lived here. So, during the 1980s, researchers began to turn their attention away from human beings. Uh, they looked at the scale of these caves and tunnels. The small, child-sized tunnels that we mentioned, they decided were likely the result of, um, of a smaller, burrowing, prehistoric uh, animal such as a giant armadillo. But the grand caves and tunnels, the ones in which human families or communities could have potentially lived, a new hypothesis emerged for these architects. And it's, it's not human beings It's not uh, flowing water or, you know, natural geologic processes. It is the giant ground sloth. The big boys. The big boys, yeah. So um, I know we've talked about sloths, uh, extant sloth species on the show before. And I guess giant ground sloths have come up at least a time or two. But I don't think we've really discussed like what they were and why they're so cool. Because mm-hmm. uh, today we have uh, in the world, I believe, six extant species of arboreal sloths. Uh, you know, they, they live in the trees, and these are certainly weird and wonderful animals. Um, I, I'll be the first to admit that they can be a bit of a bore if you encounter them in the zoo. You know, they're typically just um, you know bunched in the corner of a of an exhibit, uh, you know, just chilling or staying warm. Uh, I, but I find the, that they they often look
0: like a like a wig hanging on a hook.
1: Yeah. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I'm not commenting on their, their happiness uh, or lack of happiness there, but they're not as interesting. They're not magical to behold. But in the wild, uh, they come off like these just strange elemental spirit beings. Uh, I, I had the privilege to, to glimpse one in the wild once, and it was just magical. It's got like this kind of thing that like slowly emerges uh, out of the, the canopy in the distance, and you, you glimpse it for a short amount of time, and then it's gone
0: they're also uh magical in a different way if you get up close enough to see their face because they yes. often appear to be smiling. <laughs> yes, they have a uh, very they, they their faces are, uh, are
1: in this wonderful place that where they, they you know that we, we lean into um, anthropomorphizing them rather easily. They look kind of like they're smiling. They look a little a little derpy, which is uh, you know mm. which which is cute to to cuteness. Um And, yeah, and don't even get us started on baby sloths. Uh, Absolutely adorable. So we have uh, today three-toed sloths and two-toed sloths. This refers to the four limbs only. And these represent two uh, distantly related families that experience convergent evolution
0: to arboreal life. Hmm. Okay, so the sloth lineage is not one that that always existed in the trees. The, The species we have today... Are the ones that happened to move into the trees at some point in 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 deep history.
1: That's right, yeah. Because plenty of these other sloths or or sloths, if you if you were rather, I believe that's the British uh, pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, many of them were ground sloths, and in some cases, we're talking giant ground sloths, uh, and these these can be quite impressive. Uh, I, I've enjoyed looking at. At bones uh you know fossil exhibits of these uh, over time there's also a a wonderful full-scale muddy and shaggy uh recreation of, uh, of a of a ground slot at atlanta's own Fernbank museum of natural history i don't know if you've been over to see this joe but it's in the uh,
0: a walk through time in georgia exhibit yeah i have been through that before though i don't remember exactly what this one looks like i wonder if there's a picture of it online hold on oh yeah okay here it is i, I remember this now uh I don't, okay, this sloth needs a bath. First of all, it <laughs> is filthy. it It looks really
1: gross. Yeah, it's 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 impressive. I imagine it's been. I don't know how long it's been there, but it has to have been impressing school children uh, for for quite a while at this point. And I hope that uh, if, if at some point they they uh, they change anything in that exhibit, they they keep the sloth. Uh, yeah. This would have been an um, keep it an, dirty. <laughs> yeah keep it dirty keep it uh, keep, keep it keep it on display uh this would have i believe this was, would have been an uh, Aramotherium, which uh was a a giant ground sloth that would have lived 4.9 million years ago to around 11,000 years ago and it was it was a pretty big uh big guy uh rivaling but not surpassing the megatherium in size now, Megatherium. This is the this is the the biggest of the known ground sloths of uh, of prehistoric times. Uh, megatherium is Latin for the great
0: beast. Oh, I've never put that together before. The therium, therium being beast, but that would be like uh, as in the word theriomorphic, taking the form of a beast. Yeah. So these guys reached heights of twenty feet or
1: six meters. And they probably weighed roughly four tons. Uh, you know, dealing with ad- adults here, obviously, um, it was simply put the sloth as megafauna, uh, fearing it, f- feeling that uh, filling that niche uh, in the uh, in the ecosystem, a giant eating machine that didn't have to worry too much about predators, ate a lot to maintain their enormous bodies, and then also slept a lot to digest it. This particular guy would have been as big as an elephant, and, and exceeded at the time only in size. Uh, You know, concerning uh, mammals by some uh, uh, terrestrial mammals by some uh, mammoths during its day. So this was a Mm -hmm. huge animal. And while there are some, I think these are mainly controversial. uh, There's a controversial hypothesis that it might have been partially carnivorous. uh, You know, perhaps feasting on scavenged dead um, animals, such as I believe the uh, the the glyptodonts. Uh, But it's widely thought, I believe, that they were merely selective herbivores, Mm -hmm. though. There are some ground sloths that I think there, there's more robust evidence that they may have been sporadically omnivorous, such as the uh, Mylodon darwini. There was, I believe, a 2021 study uh, looking at uh, the coprolites of it, the, uh, the, the fossil poo of this particular sloth. And they determined that, yeah, it was probably scavenging some meat here and there to, to, make, things, uh, to make ends meet.
0: Though, as we've discussed on the show several times, there actually uh, quite a uh, there's quite robust documentation that many animals we think of as pretty much strictly herbivorous will, in some strange occasions, eat meat. Right? Na- nature is just pretty opportunistic. I mean, it's going to take what it what it gets. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, you know, th- th- this is just a, a, a starter on just how weird and strange these, uh, these, these sloths truly were. I mean, they're, they're huge. There's, the, there's this idea that some of them are also eating a little meat here and there. But then when you start realizing that, okay, looking at these paleoburrows, we're talking about giant ground sloths that were not just digging in mud and dirt. They were burrowing through rock. Uh, it, we're just in a, a whole different dimension of wonder here, in my opinion. Uh, Martin writes that as paleontologists in Argentina and Brazil started looking closer at the at the uh, the paleoburrows, they began to find clear signs that they were made. They seem to have been made by giant sloths. They were uh, so. First of all, they saw uh, there were groove marks in the walls that matched the size and claw count of uh, ground sloths, usually two-toed. And then also the dimensions of the tunnels pointed towards the sloths. These were not smooth and cylindrical tunnels, but, quote, a series of semi-elliptical chambers with flat floors, but ceilings that were possibly buffed out into concave shapes by the sloths' backs and the resulting complexes of tunnels and rooms again this this feeling that you're going into a multi-chambered subterranean habitat these were likely the result of many generations of ground sloths returning to a given site year after year so not just one creating this but you know coming back to the same location and uh, and
0: essentially adding on to it right and from what i was reading these paleo burrows they vary greatly in like size and complexity right so some are just sort of a straight cylinder that, that goes a ways in and uh, and then terminates. But there are these other ones, like you're talking about, that have these uh, more elaborate uh, branching tunnels and, and right. sometimes open up into what appear to be kind of rooms inside.
1: Yeah, yeah. And these, you know, I guess we could, if, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to compare these types of constructions to human constructions. But, you know, it's kind of like thinking about, well, think about a, a newspaper shop. Sometimes it's a freestanding place. Uh, out here on a on a street with nothing around it. Other times, well, it's it's got this thing next to it and this other thing. And I guess it gets, depends on just how much uh sloth activity was going on in that given spot. Like how what how prime this location was for the burrows and how many generations of, uh, of of animals were coming back to this place and digging these spaces out and redigging them.
0: today's episode is brought to you by eBay Join Graham Class as he hosts season two of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment
2: in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey
0: okay so another interesting point of comparison based on the articles i was reading versus uh, martin's take on this is that uh the stuff i was reading made it seem like it, it was less well agreed on what what exactly had made these tunnels and why, and that, that ground sloths and uh, extinct uh, species of armadillos were the main contenders. But it sounds like Martin is is way more on the sloths side. Yes, yeah, and
1: and he writes that when you when you look at giant ground sloth anatomy as well, especially um, uh, Skelodotherium and Glossotherium. You find that their claw hands have uh, these closely spaced thick fingers that make for, quote, natural shovels when applied against soft rock. Uh, They also had, you know, coming back to our example earlier, they had the muscle to back it all up. They had the forelimbs and the shoulders. Uh, He compares it to the muscles necessary for a galloping power, like a galloping horse, except that in this case— it's applied to digging. So uh, instead of running, this is this is power that's clearly meant to dig. Also, their center of gravity was more toward the rear of the body, which he indicates would be would be more in line with the creature that's burrowing. Mm. Now these two species that he ends up writing about, uh, they're not they're not quite as big as the Megatherium, uh, but Martin he compares them to uh, to automobiles. So he says that the uh, skeletotherium was the size of a smart uh, Fortwo electric car. These are these kind of uh, mini car. I didn't really know what these were called, but you see them out driving around.
0: Oh yeah, okay. I didn't know what these were called either, but yeah, they're the, they're like the little little cars. The yeah. the. I don't know what you like compact electric cars. You might see it. You imagine driving around some European city or something, right?
1: Right. Uh, and then uh, he says that uh, glossotherium was more the size of an average midsize car. That uh, you know, we do uh, some some car ads for this show occasionally, and I, I think we need to start asking the advertisers to indicate what species of of extinct uh, ground sloth was the size of this vehicle so that uh, uh, you know listeners will be a little bit more informed about their potential auto purchases. Right Now, while Martin doesn't really discuss megatherium in his book, uh, it's, but it seems like megatherium may have burrowed as well. I, I found some articles that were talking about the megatherium and, and uh, burrowing possibilities, uh, but this kind of blew me away. There's at least one hypothesis out there that megatherium might have, have been hairless like a a naked mole rat, like a towering naked mole rat. Uh, What? uh, What? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I I included a a, a bit of uh, paleo art here um, indicating what this might have looked like. I found it completely strange and wonderful.
0: Oh yeah, because uh, you shared this with me, and he, 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 well, he looks like the engineers from the Alien franchise.
1: Yeah, uh, you managed to even find a, a pose from one of the engineers where it's, it's it looks like they're they're doing the same pose here.
0: Yeah, I, I wish I could have done it though. What would have been perfect is if it was the engineer, but he had the mask on, like when they find the body in the original Alien. Oh goodness, yeah, because the this naked
1: giant sloth. Uh, head, its fleshy head with its, it would have, uh, you know, probably had a pretty like fleshy lip situation for, uh for all of the, uh, the, 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 the delicate consumption of, uh, of tree bits. Uh, yeah. It would have, it looked, it looks a lot like that mask that they wear in those, uh, in those movies. Okay. So wait
0: a minute. Did you, did you credit this hypothesis yet?
1: Uh, no, I haven't yet. Okay. Uh, Cause I've got be, a comment. <laughs> okay. This is a, a hypothesis by um, a, a paleontologist from Uruguay. Uh, Richard A. Farina, he wrote a paper in 2002 titled, Megatherium, the Hairless, Appearances of the Great um, Quaternary Sloths, arguing that this is in part because modern large, this may be the case, he's arguing, uh, Mm -hmm. in part because modern large mammals such as elephants and rhinos are mostly hairless to prevent overheating in hot climates.
0: Okay, so as far as I'm aware, this is not the dominant view of of uh right. of these ancient ground sloths but this is one idea i this is funny because i came across yet another paper uh where one of the two authors is the same guy richard farina uh this one was from 1996 in proceedings of the royal society b by farina and somebody named r.e blanco and this one is called megatherium the stabber that's the <laughs> title of the paper and this one hypothesizes – now, you may have already sort of touched on this when, when talking about the, uh, the, the different ideas about the diets of these sloths. Mm-hmm. But here, Farina and Blanco are looking at characteristics of the remains of, uh, of the uh, giant ground sloth of, of Megatherium. And saying, ah, maybe it wasn't so herbivorous. <laughs> they they <laughs> write, uh, quote, uh, Megatherium americanum had morphological features that are better explained by its having had carnivorous habits rather than by solely herbivorous ones. Specifically, the question of its forearms having been designed for optimizing speed rather than strength of extension is addressed. So they argue that the anatomy of the forearms is such that this is an animal that would have been using uh, uh, vicious attacks with its claws rather than just sort of uh, slow, slow extending actions of like tearing branches out of trees or something. Mm. And then they also say that the high mechanical advantage of the megatherium's biceps – would have made it possible for the animal to have lifted and carried heavy weights. And they're like, well, what if this means it was like turning animals over to get at the soft underbelly? Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure if anybody agrees with this today. This seem this seems possibly out there, but I I like the idea that Farina has has made a career uh, at least partially on on uh, proposing uh, alternate interpretations of the Megatherium. Yeah, I think I, I
1: did look at part <laughs> of this paper. The, the idea I think is that glyptodonts, uh, it would have been like turning the glyptodont over and then uh, using the the claws and the forearms to like dig into the belly and start eating the flesh. Uh, right, get, get and, that thing, and, flip it, and then stab with the claws. Yeah, and I'm not sure entirely if we're talking about a, a living glyptodont or a dead one. If we're ultimately talking, is he arguing like the, the this was the mighty hunter or that basically it's eating a lot of plants, but if it finds a dead glyptodont, yeah, it's going to flip it over and dig in a little bit.
0: Uh, they're saying predatory behavior. So again, mm. again, I want to be very clear. I, I've not found any indication that this is a widely accepted interpretation right. of of Megatherium remains. Uh, but an but interesting hypothesis, you know. Yeah, it's funny.
1: All right, so coming back to paleoburrows, um, one of the the big remaining questions, and ultimately, I guess, one of the big remaining mysteries is uh, okay. So if we if we're going to go with the hypothesis that these were dug out by giant ground sloths, why did they burrow in the ground? Why did they seem to come back to the same places, uh, you know, year after year, generation after generation, and maintain these spaces? So Martin gets into this, because the the whole book is about, you know, deals with questions of why animals do this, why is the burrow advantageous, why has it helped, you know, why in some cases did it uh, enable certain creatures to survive cataclysms on the earth? Well, well, Martin points out that, okay, if we're looking at the small burrows, we're looking at the work presumed to be uh, created by giant armadillos, he thinks they likely burrowed for the same reason that modern armadillos do. It's just, it's safer underground. It allows mm-hmm. them to hide somewhere that major predators cannot go. And, um, and so, you know, these ancient uh, armadillos, even though they were you know, bigger than what we have today, they would still have to avoid things like saber-toothed cats and short-faced bears. But when we look at the great uh, ground sloths here, digging tunnels so big that they wouldn't have been able to keep these predators out, <laughs> uh, you know, we have a slightly different situation. Uh, and we're also dealing with creatures that were, that were, you know, large enough in some cases that they, they probably didn't really have to worry about these predators, not while they were healthy at any rate. And, you know, not when, and, uh, you know, certainly when you get into, you know, young being around, that's a different situation. But, you know, they're not as threatened, by these predators, and they also are not creating spaces that would adequately protect them anyway. Right. Yeah. So I mean, these are kind of the perks of being megafauna, uh, with yeah. only climate change and human hunting seeming to be big enough threats to to end their reigns. Mm-hmm. According to Martin, the most popular current hypothesis here is that the primary reason that ground the giant ground sloths um, dug these tunnels was ultimately to cope with a climate that was drier than today's. So the idea here is the cave would have maintained more humid conditions as well as an average temperature, thus helping the animal out no matter what the outside temperature is, if it's
0: colder or hotter uh, than what would be comfortable for the organism. Now that is interesting, and it it also makes me think about how uh, I think it's certainly the case that when animals get bigger – they mm-hmm. have more uh heat dissipation problems to worry about, right 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 so
1: so the yeah, this hypothesis seems to revolve you know roughly around that like how does this 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 uh this this large ground sloth maintain appropriate body temperatures and um uh, I, I can only guess how this might mesh or not mesh with uh, farina's uh hairless ground sloth hypothesis, like does a hairless ground sloth would it need to climb into a burrow even more? Uh, I don't know. This is not something that I think um, experts have weighed in on that I have seen. Uh, as a side note, I will say that I did notice that it looks like giant ground sloths do feature into some video games. I wonder if anyone has been inspired by Farina's uh, hypotheses and decided to make them aggressive, and maybe they come up and, like, they, if you're in a vehicle, they turn your vehicle over and, like, mm-hmm. dig you out through the bottom of the vehicle. That would right. be kind of
0: cool. The ground sloths, the naked stabber.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now, as I as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the ground sloths we're talking about they did overlap with human beings for uh, for at least a short time, and it seems like human beings probably had a, played a major role in their extinction. Um, you know, there uh, there are, there have been sites where we find evidence of uh, of butchery taking place with uh, with these giant ground sloths. So ultimately. Human beings survive. Some arboreal sloth survive, but the age of the the giant ground sloth um, came to an end.
0: Okay, so this is not super related to what we're talking about. But did you happen to read that thing about the giant ground sloths and the the paper arguing that uh, that like twenty two of them that were found dead all in the same place died in a in a poop related mass casualty incident? <laughs> no, I did not. Uh, So the the paper was published in Paleogeography, Paleoclimatology, and Paleoecology in in 2020 by Lindsay et al., Uh, and it was documenting... A large death assemblage from the, uh, from the late Pleistocene in a place called Tanque Loma in the southwest of, uh, of Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And so it was this place that had the remains of at least 22 different giant ground sloths, the Eremotherium uh, laurel and they, uh, they they found all of these animals together in a in a deposition pattern that indicated that they basically all died right around the same time, gathered around this marshy little pool of water that looked like a place that had uh, repeatedly been been filled with water and then and then dried up and allowed plants to grow and then filled mm-hmm. with water again. So maybe one of these. Uh, sort of uh, intermittent watering holes, places that, that sometimes have water and sometimes don't. And based on a number of of cues around this area, the authors decided that they thought the most likely interpretation of what happened here is that a bunch of giant ground sloths were hanging out in and around this water, using it to cool their bodies and as a as a watering hole to drink from and to eat the plants that were growing around. And uh, that by fouling this water source that was ever shrinking with their fecal matter, they essentially poop poisoned themselves and, and many of them ended up dying.
1: <laughs> you know, I don't have, is there a paleo art to go with this one, Joe? It's not it?
0: very inspiring for the children's books, is it? Okay. Uh, yeah. But the. But the, they end up writing and, – and there are, there are modern uh, analogies for this. The in uh, like uh, like shrinking watering holes in in uh, present-day savanna environments, they write, quote, We suggest that this death event could have resulted from drought and or disease stemming from the contamination of the wallow, paralleling situations observed among hippopotamus populations in watering holes on the present-day African savannah. So sometimes this apparently happens, like a, a watering hole – in a In a dry area is is filled with hippos, and they just keep pooping into it and drinking it and obviously that's that's not good for them hmm. well, we can
1: see how the, you know we can see like changing climates potentially impacting these situations as well yeah yeah yeah, so um Martin in his book again, the whole book is full, full is full of wonderful explorations of of burrowing creatures um, you know n- not all of which are vertebrates. Uh, for sure. Uh, I recommend picking that up if you're at all interested in this topic. Uh, but he writes that scientists would have once thought that creatures as large as these uh, these ground sloths would ha- would not have burrowed, that the burrowed, burrowing creatures do not grow this big. Uh, but he points out that, in fact, the largest burrowing animals today are bears, especially, he says, if you count snow as a substrate for burrowing, which he does, you know, uh, I think we've all seen... Uh, he points out that we you know we've all seen documentaries at this point showing uh polar bears doing that burrowing in the snow creating a burrow uh for uh, mother polar bear anyway for her young and uh and yeah if you if you count snow as a substrate for burrowing then
0: that's that's burrowing and that's a pretty impressive interesting so this comes in a way back to the dinosaur paper we talked about earlier because th- this uh would primarily be a denning behavior for the protection of young while they're mm-hmm. while they're still vulnerable
1: yeah now, I, I do have to mention as well, the, the, quite amusingly, and, and of course, you know, very much uh, 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 touching on my interest, he also compares the giant ground sloth to the Graboids from the 1990 movie Trimmers. Uh, this was pretty fun when I was looking through the index on this. Uh, when I first got the book, I was like, oh, he talks about trimmers at some point. Uh, this seems
0: like our, our, our kind of scientist. Oh, uh, he right. Po- so yeah. the because the giant ground sloths also had multiple snake tongues that would go out and get you. <laughs> well, no. no. But
1: but he points out, like he seems to to be a fan of trimmers, but he points out that, okay, you have these fabulous... Uh, Worm-like creatures that are digging these tunnels, burrowing through the ground in this, uh, you know, corner of Nevada. Um, He says, "Well, well, there would probably be uh, some remnant of that. There would be some. uh, uh, There's some evidence of ancient graboids in this area um,
0: uh, where the burrowing would have taken place, Uh, right? So even if the animal decomposed, it would leave the trace fossils of its burrows, right?
1: And I don't know. Thinking back on on the graboids, it looked like there were some hard parts uh, that might uh, fossilize."
0: Oh, yeah. Maybe that's Beaks or something.
1: Yeah, the beak.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't know. Awaiting his uh, his full uh, paper break, uh, d- doing a breakdown of the Graboids.
0: Now, wait a minute. Didn't we learn in some of the Deep Trimmer sequels that they have multiple life cycle stages mm-hmm. and that some of them are, like, flying and, and junk like Running that? around. There's a version with legs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I
1: don't know that I ever really watched any of the sequels, but I, I have a lot of love for that first Tremors, uh, film. That was just, that's a, a pretty perfect monster movie. Pretty great I cast. I think,
0: so the Kevin Bacon's not in the sequels. The sequels end up focusing more on... He comes back at some point, or he was, oh, because they did a TV series. They did a lot of, I think, you know... Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Sci-fi channel kind of, uh, sequels there. But then they did a TV show at some point, and, um, I feel, I feel like Kevin Bacon finally came back. Um, this
0: the sequels i'm familiar with don't have bacon they focus more on that guy who's reba's husband in the first one the like mm-hmm. the gun the gun prepper guy yeah uh yeah that played by uh, michael gross yeah that's right yeah he's mm-hmm. the he's the like heavily armed dale gribble guy in the first yeah. movie yeah yeah he was in a bunch of them i mean he, he was fun in that i don't know why but we we often go around quoting uh, reba mcintyre from the first Tremors movie she she's just got a lot of a lot of punchy delivery, you know, you can get penetration even with the elephant gun. Yeah, Reap is great in that. Yeah. Oh,
1: and I am correct. Uh, there was a 2018 TV movie called Tremors and it, it it had the return of Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. So, there you go. I have not seen it. Can't okay. vouch for it. I apologize. I was wrong.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close <laughs> it. Yep. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. I just, I just Googled it and I found that... Uh, uh, sorry, on Reba's website, she has a, a page dedicated to trimmers. Oh, well, that's great. So you can go to reba.com slash trimmers. Let's let's also not forget that Victor Wong is in that and
1: is also pretty fabulous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right. We're going to go ahead and close it out here. But uh, we'd love to hear from anyone out there who has thoughts on these, if you've have- uh, you know uh, if you have j- any thoughts on giant ground sloths or uh modern arboreal sloths um everything is uh is up for grabs here other interesting tunnels that you're aware of be they you know naturally uh, occurring caves and so forth or modern or ancient human constructions that we're trying to figure out uh we'd love to hear about all of that In the meantime, if you would like to listen to more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find us in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Listener mail on Monday. Artifact on Wednesday. And on Friday, we do Weird House Cinema.
0: That's our time to set aside most serious matters and just talk about a strange film. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at
2: the first time, every time, all your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed.